welcome to Phil yeah. and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. I'm Ted Bonnet. And I'm Ted Bonnet. Oh, no, no wait. No, I'm, I'm Phil I'm, Proctor. I'm Phil Proctor. You're Phil Proctor. I'm Phil. Yes. Uh, How are you, Phil? I'm, I'm actually feeling pretty good yeah? today, especially since uh, we have, a, a, as our guest today, Carl Gottlieb, who uh, we go back a long ways together, and, and we're going to talk about a lot of interesting things today, including the writer's strike. Yes. Now, yes. I had some, some material written for me about it. But I can't, uh, I can't use it. Why? Because we're on, I'm, oh, because you're on strike. strike. Yeah. Well, that's a shame. Well, we, you know, to fill the gaps, we're trying a new thing with the f- with the show, a new format. Yeah. We're going to invite a fan <laughs> to come in and ask a couple is of that questions. What this guy yeah, over that's here who this is. guy is right here. What do you think I was his bodyguard? <laughs> what, what is your? Who are you? What's your name? My name is M. C. Ganey. Oh, I, oh, I know you. I'm here. Yes, as I'm here as uh, Mr. Gottlieb's bodyguard. Biggest fan. Yeah, and big and biggest fan. So, so he'll have a chance to. Um, he paid a hundred dollars. He paid a hundred dollars. So, so he gets a he gets three questions. Wow. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. Anyway, well, let's say Carl hello Gottlieb. to Carl. Hello, all. Hello, hello, Carl. hello to you here in the studio, and hello to all the, to the all few ladies and gentlemen, and all the ships at sea. <laughs> <laughs> what, a, what a pleasure to see well, most to, of to see you. Drift, I think. Yeah, right. yeah. Now, Carl, um, you are an actor, a director, a producer, a screenwriter, an author. You wrote best-selling books: the autobiography mm-hmm. of David Crosby, and two of them. Uh, two of them, and a book I just read this weekend, The Jaws Log. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. I read the 30th anniversary edition. They're all the same. Yes. And no, <laughs> they're all the same after the 30th anniversary edition and forward. They're yeah. all the same. And, um, of course, you you wrote Jaws, the movie. With I, I share credit on the screenplay yeah. with Peter Benchley. And did you know that I went to school with Peter Benchley? What a preppy you must be. No, no, it was grade school. (laughs) Alan Stevenson School in New York City. uh, And Michael Eisner was also there. What? Where is that? Uh, East 78th Street. Okay. And Lexington. I'm a a West Side guy. I've always known that about you. What grade were you in? Uh, many of them. <laughs> you know, one, one through six, I believe. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, and then you go to junior high school. Yeah. And, yeah. Then, and then you go to regular high school. I went. They, they have two plans in New York, uh, K through eight, four-year high school, yeah. mm-hmm. or K through six, three-year junior, junior or whatever it is, and yeah. then last three years at a regular college. Well, you have to be a mathematic genius just, you know, to be able to understand that. Are yeah. you from, are you, where are you from originally, Carl? New York. Oh, you yeah. are from, I, the, I, from the city? I grew up in Washington Heights, Manhattan, oh. in the Heights. Oh, wow. I, as a matter of fact, I, I, went, uh, I went to four years of high school and two years of college taking public transportation, and I got so tired of that, I transferred. I said, I want to go out of town. I had read like Dink Stover at Yale, and I figured yeah. I want to go to a college that has a dormitory and a yeah, football, right? A football stadium and a foot. Well, you, CCNY had a football stadium, Lewiston Stadium, great stadium for concerts. True, but uh, I wanted a stadium with a football team and fraternities yeah. and all that. But stuff. But you had the A train. Yeah, the A train's a great train. Well, you have to take the local down to Seventy Second Street. The double A. You know. I used to have to go up to 253rd Street in the Bronx because yep. I went to Riverdale. But but they had a dormitory. I, I became a, 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 a they call it a, a five day boarder because then you could go you know back to mom over the weekends. Yeah. You know? Plus at New Haven, at Yale, you had 
Well, well Yale, that's another story. What, yeah. where, is that where is that? No, no, I wound up at Syracuse. 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 Okay. Yeah, and that's where you met Larry Hankin, I, yes. I learned. Yep. Holy mackerel, I, I saw Larry yesterday. Oh, great. Larry's yeah. been on the show? Yeah, sure. He, 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 uh, I read his book, too. His, his, his book is a very entertaining read. He is a very entertaining man, yes. isn't he? He's still going full, full bore. Yep, yep. Amazing, amazing. So you... Uh, where do we start? You started, uh, again, through through these relationships. The committee is where you, you first sort of did. Yeah, I, I'm curious. How did you get connected up with the committee? Okay. What it, first, let's define the committees for people who don't know. All right. It, it's probably the most la- a landmark in, in improvisational. After Second City. After Second City, that's true. They were kind of the first to really the ver- the, go national. And, back and, in... in uh, Prehistory. The day. (laughs) Back in the day. There was the second city. There was the premise in New York. That's right. And then there was the committee in San Francisco. And the compass players also. Uh, Yeah, the compass players hadn't started yet because they were an offshoot from the committee, I believe. Oh, they were. I think it was Larry who told the story about how they picked them up in a car and drove them out to San Francisco. That was the committee, yes. Yeah, for the committee. Yeah. I... I, uh, I was thrilled. I was uh, stationed in the Army at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, which is quite an attractive spot, garden (laughs) garden spot of Missouri. And uh, I read in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, which we used to get at the Post, uh, that Larry was going to be in St. Louis with the Compass Theater, Ah. uh, which was uh, an offshoot, or or David Shepard, who was one of the co-founders of Second City, Mm -hmm. uh, found a place to do the show, and and, uh, Larry was hired to do the show in St. Louis. And I said, wow, here I am at Fort Leonard Wood. Larry's in St. Louis. I can go in on the weekends, which is what I did. I'd go in every weekend to St. Louis and pretend I was a civilian and hang out with Larry at the Compass Theater and experience the scene on Gaslight Square, which I don't know if you remember, Gaslight Mm. Square was a big uh, kind of a Greenwich Village enclave in St. Louis. Mm. And the doyens of uh, that neighborhood were uh, a couple – uh, Fran and Jay Landisman, and Jay Landisman was the entrepreneur who founded the uh, uh, the Compass, uh, who put the Compass Theater into a theater. Oh wow! And, and, J- and Fran Landisman was off <laughs> writing songs. She was a great songwriter and composer. She wrote "Girls in Their Summer Dresses" and all, all kinds of good books wow. stuff. <laughs> anyway, so that's how I got to St. Louis, and I got and then. Uh, Larry got picked up to go to San Francisco, and <laughs> my army stint in St. Louis ended. Wow! And I, uh, but I, I was in St. Louis. I was in the army for the Great uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. Oh, oh boy, that was an that was your fault. <laughs> no, no, I, I was. Know that. I, I was part of the deterrent. I all of a sudden, I was uh, I was in a training company, so I didn't have to worry about shipping out. Yeah, because that, that was the regular troops. But the poor regulars. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Who, who were stationed at Fort Leonard Wood, when the Cuban Missile Crisis arose, they were mobilized, issued live ammunition. They had trucks ready to roll. Wow. They were going to convoy to Miami where yes. they would take a, you know, boats to, to attack Cuba. Uh, boy, that was close. Dump, double <laughs> latrine duty, too, I'm sure. Yes. And right. I was on the streets of St. Louis doing that famous countdown when they were wondering if the boats would turn back or if the yeah. Russians would, oh my God, would, yes, uh, I remember would that. break the blockade. And it was a pretty edgy time. Uh, but the Russians turned back, and you know, peace yeah. prevailed. The Kanyesha, so you, so you ended up going out to San Francisco. Yes, and as Larry Hankin tells it, 
you got some work down in Hollywood, mm-hmm. and you went, and he ended up coming down and sleeping on your couch. Yep. Well, what, what happened? <laughs> one of the advantages of being in the committee is occasionally you would get scouted by mm-hmm. uh, casting agents from uh, L.A. Yeah, the big Mo- city. most notorious of which was Fred Roos, who later yeah, oh, became Freddie Roos. He became uh, Francis Coppola's partner. And yep, big ca- producer. <laughs> big, big producer. It was kind of an event because you could fly for next to nothing up to San Francisco, a, and mid- it was a weekend event for people to come exactly. up and see the show. The midnight special was like uh, ninety-five dollars or forty-five dollars. Yeah. It left at about twelve ten a.m. from. San Francisco got to L.A. about 1 a.m., and you could go to sleep and then wake up the next day and do your, do a Monday's work because we were dark Mondays. Yeah, yeah. You could do a day's work and then get on the plane and go back to San Francisco, which is what I did. What, what, did oh, you, cool. what brought you down to Los Angeles originally? I mean, what was the, what was the, the job? My first important job, I, got, well, I was cast on the Smothers Brothers show as a writer, sketch performer. Yeah, now how did you get cast as a writer? It, 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 because you were a sketch performer, and uh, Tom and Dick had had been a huge hit on television for two years. They Indeed. knocked Bonanza out of number one. Wow! And uh, in their contract, they had to live with a network-approved producer for two years. And the guy they got was a guy named Stan Harris, who was a, a conventional producer of schlock. Yeah. So they got rid of him as soon as they could and took over the reins and produced their own show and started looking around for what I like to think are the best and the brightest, mm-hmm. among which were myself, Lorenzo Music, Bob Einstein, wow. uh, a, a guy Lee, named Paul Lee French. Lee French. Lee French. Lee French. Uh, well, Lee French had done the show as talent. You know, They had booked her as talent. That's right. And then the other writers were uh, uh, Steve uh, Martin. Steve Martin was on the show, and, and uh, Bob Einstein. I said, mentioned yeah. Bob Einstein yeah. and me. And so uh, it was a very wow. what was the what was the what was the spirit there? I mean, what were you guys? I mean, you, you feel were really like pushing you were revolutionaries. It. Yeah, let's kick ass and take names. You know, we uh, we you know we were every week was a tussle with. Uh, yeah. Did you get a lot of blowback from the pro- network? Program practice. Yeah, I mean, I know they took you off eventually, but was it always there from it the was, beginning? The, the pressure was always there. It got so that we would put stuff in the script that we knew would be cut to distract them from the stuff that we wanted ah. to be in the show. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you, you, you type in the script, you cunt. And they, <laughs> oh, no. And they would say, you can't say that. Meanwhile, a page or two later, when it said, when we said, you know, the president is a jerk. That slipped yeah, by. Yeah, that slipped by. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing what the censors will miss when oh, you yeah, do that. Yeah. It's like uh, dangling a bright object over here. Yeah. It was actually the same in, in the Soviet satellites uh, uh, during that time. They would do cabaret in like Poland. Yeah. And they would do jokes that the censors did not understand. They were almost speaking in a code. And, they, and everybody, you know, felt energized by that, yeah. fighting against the, the oppression of the Soviet system. Well, like that great Russian line uh, that described the Soviet workers, they, they uh, pay us to work and we pay to not work. Oh, boy. Well, it's it, better in Russian, I think. It's <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure it you is. won an Emmy. <laughs> uh, the Smothers Show won an Emmy. We had so many tussles with program practices that when the and the Tommy so antagonized mm. yeah. Robert Wood, who at that time was the president of CBS, that they canceled the show, and then wow. we won the Emmy. 
<laughs> which oh was a, that's kind of a rebuke. But in the meantime, we had all been picked up for the next season. So it was mm. for us individual writers and the talent, any, any of us who were under contract, it was great. Pay or play, right? It was pay or play. Pay or play. So I got paid for doing seven episodes of wow. doing nothing. That's show business. But, and, you know, the backdrop of that period, that. 1968, yeah. political assassinations were going to the moon, Vietnam. It was a, a extremely volatile period. Much like today. Yeah. <laughs> History repeats itself, yeah, well, repeats itself. Interesting repeats point. Itself. I mean, how do you see it now with the wisdom of experiencing the, the late 60s today? Uh, to quote one of the popular songs of the period, we have all been here before. <laughs> <laughs> Deja vu. Yeah. And Close something's happening here, what it is. Yeah, it's uh, getting clearer and clearer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we want to talk about the writer strike eventually, but we want to talk a little bit about your career, a lot about your career first. I mean, you eventually, then you went to um, the Bob Newhart show? Uh, yes, uh, yeah, let's see. I, we got an Emmy on the Smother show. We were canceled. My next show, the Bob Newhart show is just an episode that I wrote with George Yannick. Um, what the hell did I do after Smothers? Uh, well, oh, you... I did Music Scene. Uh, there was a show on ABC, a short-lived 17-episode show on ABC called Music Scene that features sketches and comedy. It uh, was kind of contemporaneous. It was ABC's effort to uh, match or, or uh, overwhelm Laugh-In. Mm. And, ah, sure. and it was a very odd format. We was it was a forty-five minute sh- network show Ooh. that went on the air at seven thirty, and the thought was, Laughin went on at eight. Yeah, so we would be on for a half hour before, before Laughin, mm-hmm. and in those days, where you know mechanical clickers were just uh, you know just being pe- people rarely got up to change a channel. That's so whatever right. channel you were on, you tended yes, to stay on true. it until something came up that offended you. Yeah, you, right, right. Got up and changed the channel. <laughs> but the strategy was to be on and bridge the gap mm-hmm. at, eight, at eight o'clock, mm-hmm. and then we were followed by another forty-five minute show. Uh, equally doomed, called The, <laughs> the New People, which is a ripoff uh, of uh, a Desert Island show and Cast Away. You know, oh, really? Uh, oh, my the, gosh. The, uh, a pre-runner of all what, of yeah. what was, what was refle- you know, How was all this volatility reflecting the times? I mean, it seemed... From, from a comedy perspective? From a comedy perspective. <laughs> I mean, you were doing pretty anti-establishment stuff on very establishment broadcast networks. Yes, and, and that, that was our charm. Yep. Right. That's, that's why people liked us. When we did the... Uh, Car, the, the committee did the Carson show. Yeah, we the, they wanted us to do a sketch called a Blind Date, and the payoff, the punchline for Blind Date is you want to screw. Oh, and, and you know, censors object. You know, we we did it in rehearsal, and you know, program practices came running down and talked to yeah. the Tonight Show producers. And then they said you can't say screw, so we compromised that. Do you want to mess around? I think which was the. But had none That's of the, really dirty. But had none, of the, had none of the punch. No, of, of course not. <laughs> so Carson came over to us and whispered to us, say screw, I'll, oh, say screw, I'll, I'll cover for you. Wow. So at the time, the, we cue the, cue the actors. We did the sketch. We said screw. The audience went, whoa, uh, laughed and you know, cried. And, and, and Johnny's at his desk going, oh, I had no idea say that. You know, <laughs> Uh, but it, you know the, the, the sketch played well, so you know we, everybody wound up a hero except program practices. But who cares about them? That's yeah. right. Well, that still they're, goes on today. Yeah, you know, there's still a uh, you know a barrier to creativity. 
But you know, when I was looking at at your extraordinary list of the shows that you did that were, were right for, I realized that, that uh, the um, Amazon Women on the Moon. I'm in that movie. Yes. I don't know if you wrote the sketch. the The sketch that I did was about silly putty, uh, silly pate. Edible, <laughs> edible, silly, funny. <laughs> no, I didn't. I, I'm, I'm eating uh, skeezix, you know. <laughs> anyway, no, but you did right. But we, we had that in common. Yeah, and Amazon Women on the Room, I actually directed one of the segments. Yeah, it was a great time, really. Yeah, that yeah, was, There was a, like this little opening for satirical yeah, comedy. Satirical comedy, progressive comedy. Uh, you know, there was, it was... Uh, what was the thinking because of the... the, the the youth movement, the hippie movement, they thought they could push it a little? Well, yeah, everybody was realized that the hippie, uh, that the youth movement was besides being, you know, headline-worthy and, you know, Woodstock generation and all that stuff, in addition, it was pushing the political barriers of what was safe speech, what That's was right. free speech. Yeah. There was a free speech movement in Berkeley, which yeah. was a big deal. Yeah. Uh, so the, uh, if I, on KPFK, I can say this word. The Zeitgeist <laughs> was uh, in favor of progressive comedy, so yeah. we, we it, it benefited Phil and I tremendously. Yeah. Oh, and that, that's when the comedy, great comedy albums were coming out from George that's Carlin right. and 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 well, you know Pryor. when he's talking about the clicking, don't crush that dwarf hammy. The pliers uh, predicted the remote control, yeah, and what would happen <laughs> when you could do that. You know, yeah, just like uh, Proctor Bergman's album TV or not TV predicted. Thousands of well, we just thought there'd be hundreds instead of thousands of channels available to people. But at the time that you were doing your remarkable work, it was it was a nice, dangerous place to be. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Oh yeah, I, I, I can remember. Committee did a benefit uh, for the peace movement in San Francisco, and we were a huge rally in San Francisco's. Oh boy, I'll bet that that, that party outside of. Uh, I guess outside the city hall is a place where demonstrations yeah. mm -hmm. gather, and we were there. And I'm on the podium, and, and I'm th thinking to myself, somewhere out there there's a guy in a raincoat with a grenade. <laughs> and we're all sitting ducks up here. Mm -hmm. Well, got to go on with the show. And if I see any unusual movement, I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm out of here. Exit not, laughing. Not your first uh, <laughs> tough room. No. But what? we spe often speculated, you know, what if, you know, today this show, that crazy, is out there. Yeah. Nowadays, it's much more of a yeah. uh, an issue. You know, in those days, it was rare. You didn't have many public serial killers coming out of the world. Well, you didn't that's, have, that's a, yeah, you didn't have millions and millions of military-style weaponry in, yeah. the, in the hands of unhinged people. What? Um, so, how did you make the the transition from television into the movies, film writing? Well. In those days, everybody in television wanted to be in the movies. That was the hierarchy. Yeah. You know, television, you were okay, but you were a second-grade artist. M movies yeah. were first-rate, and that's where everybody aspired. So uh, I had won the Emmy. I had done a comedy with Richard. No, I had won the Emmy. And uh, let me see how I You need somebody to write your biography. Just, <laughs> <laughs> just turn to page 17. Yeah. <laughs> where was I then? Uh, but but uh, uh, what was the question again? The question was <laughs> well, there was this huge division between television and oh, films. Yes, right. yes. So um, through one way or another, there's a whole other origin story. But yeah. I was asked to collaborate with Steven Spielberg and work on a rewrite of Jaws. How did that happen? 
Uh, okay, I'll, I'll do the origin. I'll do the origin. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, Stephen and I were. We had the same agent, a guy named Mike Metavoy, who you may oh, remember. Oh, sure. sure. And he was prescient uh, on the notion of packaging, and he would put his count his clients together mm-hmm. to mm. do stuff. And he yeah. had a client roster that included Spielberg, Carol Eastman, John Milius, uh, Dreyfus. Uh, was he? Uh, no, Dreyfus had his own agent. And then there was own. another guy. Uh, Oh, let's see. Uh, Just those alone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but there was a, he had a pretty sterling client list, and he put me together with Stephen. And, wow. uh Now, Stephen, at this point, is pretty young. He did dual. Uh, Stephen has just gotten his universal contract as a result of uh, – no, he did a short called Amblin. Oh, that's uh, right. Which is the source of Amblin Productions. But uh. it, Sugar so he he was doing yeah. he was doing television. He was a television director, mm-hmm. and he directed the pilot for Columbo, which very few people oh, know. I didn't know. Huh. He directed the Joan Crawford thing on uh, yes uh, on the Night she, Gallery, yeah, yeah, where she goes blind and can, and can see for twelve hours, and there's the blackout in New York. Uh, wow! And so, then I remember Duel very well. Sure. Well, yeah. So so I so uh, and I acted in a couple of his television movies. He did a TV movie called. Um, uh, something, it's it's on that list as a it's TV. On the list. Something, okay, well, something, uh, something or other. Something wild, something strange, something whatever. Anyway, I did that TV movie as an actor, <coughs> and then uh, he sent me the script of Jaws that he had picked up off the desk at the Zanuck Brown office, huh. and sent me a copy with a note on the cover that said, "Eviscerate it." Ooh. So in, in those days, if, wow. I were, if, if I was approached Ooh. with a if I was approached with a rewrite job, yeah, I would type out because that was the technology of the time. I would type out a long memo or short memo saying, you know, uh, interesting material. This is what I would change. This is what I would keep. Right. And it was good to have it in writing because when the sh- when you start doing a rewrite, they go, oh, we didn't ask for this. And I said, no, no, I said I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a way of covering my ass. So I wrote the memo which I still have to this day. I exhumed it for a Spielberg documentary. But in the memo, I <laughs> I made one mistake and one prescient comment. Mm. The mistake first, I said, does the girl have to die because she has sex? That's such a teen movie cliche. Oh. You know, teenager has sex, right. dies. dies. You know, that's, yeah. I, I didn't know Stephen that's, would shoot it the way he did. Those are most of my dates, actually. Yes. <laughs> that's the opening scene. But at least you had sex. Yeah, <laughs> right. What yeah. happens to them after is not our concern. <laughs> Who cares? Uh, that's the opening scene of Jaws. Yeah. And it turned out to be the opening scene of Jaws. And he shot he shot it so that it – boy, was it not a cliche when it happened. Oh, no. And the other comment I made, I said, if we do our jobs right, me and Stephen – Yeah. People will feel about going in the water the way they felt about taking a shower after Psycho. Psycho, exactly. And it sure did work because I was at Martha's Vineyard not a year after that movie came yeah. out. And I was with a buddy. We were, you know, in our 20s. He would not go in the water. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we were sued by some beach in Florida for destroying oh, yeah. their business. And, and uh, <laughs> it was it – was, uh, Well, they, they uh, spotted a 10-foot-long white shark, uh, great white, off of the – 
North Carolina coach or something like that just just yesterday. Yesterday, yeah. <laughs> I thought, oh, how prescient is that? But, no, it still fascinates me. The memo oh, yeah. that you wrote, I don't know if this was part of the memo, but in Jaws Log, you write about how, and this was the prescient thing for me, was that you wrote to him saying, you know, you, you could go either way in this, and this could be another Poseidon adventure. Yeah. You know, it could really go cheesy. Yeah. Or you could not. And so, in a way, you really pushed it. Yeah. We, it, it, uh, it, it turned out to be a... Uh, you know, a, a happy circumstance and a beneficial situation for everybody. Completely Indeed. redefine the business. Yeah. And, and, and I'd like to weigh in here a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I was just going to say. Uh, our guest, uh, one, guest, uh, our guest uh, fan. Yeah. Our guest fan, yeah. MC Gaming. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I was fascinated. I've read this book several times. It's fascinated. It's an amazing, an amazing book. The situation of being able to write a major motion picture while you're acting in it, and while it's being shot, is so to me so bizarre that Very I can't. Uh, most writers today would just uh, would freak out. I think. And well, there w- was, there's a couple. I think Casablanca was written that way. Yes, yeah. that's well, right. You it was. had that's Julius right. and, and right. Uh, yeah. Philip. So yeah, yeah, right. yeah. So and there's a couple of films, and then you know there's unspoken number of films where they won't admit that they were you know making it up as they went along. Right. Yeah. But uh, it, it was not a common practice, I can tell you. No, that. and you were working with a typewriter. Yes. I mean, yes. to think that you didn't <laughs> yeah. have a computer to do yeah. this is, is kind of now, I want A typewriter, paper, and scotch tape to put things together. As I was thinking and salivating at the possibility of, of meeting you, I, I was trying to resist scene 188 and the Indianapolis speech. And then the more I thought about it, the more I thought that uh, maybe in a sh- brief period you could uh, tell that story uh, uh, about what it actually is and who wrote it. Uh, Peter Benchley, in his contract, got it that he could write a screenplay for Jaws of his own novel. That was part sure. of his deal. So they let him write. You know, they had to get let him had to take a crack at it. Right. His his screenplay was just you know tra- kind of a transcription of his novel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they got another writer, a guy named Howard Sackler, well known writer, wrote Grey Lady Down and the Great White Hope. He's a real a real writer. Great White Hope, yeah. yeah. Great White Shark. Yeah. So he, <laughs> simple step. So he he wrote a draft of Jaws, which is the draft that Stephen sent me that said eviscerate him. <laughs> and he, in the in the novel. The character of Quint has no backstory. He just exists. He's just an existential uh-huh. guy. Sackler invented uh, the backstory for Quint because he, he was a Navy guy. He was aware of the Indianapolis incident, the wow. court martial. Hmm. So he put that in the in the in the in the screenplay, uh, and everybody who read the screenplay from that point forward balked at that script because it's like three pages of just dialogue. And if you've ever looked at a movie script, yeah. you've never seen three that, pages no, of dialogue. Uh, and for those of you who may not remember, that was the scene where he spoke about the smorgasbord for, for sharks, yeah. the sailor smorgasbord for yes. sharks. Yeah, it's, it's his backstory. Yeah, he basically put in Quint's backstory. So uh, when when I got it and Stephen got it, they were very nervous about that speech. Oh, really? And Stephen asked all his friends, Paul Schrader, George Lucas, John Milius, uh, Carol Eastman, the whole mm. Metavoy client list. Wow. Paul Schrader, writer of Taxi Driver. Yes. He, he asked him, they, he asked them, he sent them all that speech and said, what do I do with this? Huh. And they all, you know, crafted some sort of response, except Milius. I mean, Milius takes credit for it, and Spielberg gives him credit for it mm. in, a, in an unfortunate documentary choice. Slip of the lip. That's incorrect. <laughs> yeah. uh, as I say in my book, the only lines credited correctly to Milius is, I'll find him for five, I'll kill him for ten. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the only bit yeah. of Milius that's in the speech. 
and I know because I kept all the versions of the script and because uh, I anticipated a credit arbitration. So and, I and, uh-huh. and that line doesn't appear in this scene. And, it and appears that, in the, uh, the the town meeting. Yes, exactly. exactly. So so uh, having you know d- determined that you know that there was all these writers. Uh, we're wondering now. By now, yeah. we're on the vineyard, and the day of shooting that scene is approaching. Shot on Martha's Vineyard in we Massachusetts. Shot on Martha's Vineyard, where mm-hmm. we, and as the date approaches, everybody's getting real nervous. But we used to have dinner. Spielberg and I shared a house in the vineyard. Mm-hmm. He he like brought along his writer actor to mm-hmm. to, to help him because we were good collaborative partners. I encourage time. more of that for what directors who are listening. To yeah, <laughs> bring the writers. It wouldn't hurt. And and. Uh, one and we had uh, we had a housekeeper and everything. It was very civilized. Yeah. Uh, and one night at a collective dinner, you know, me and Stephen, Verna Fields and Zanuck and Brown. Verna Fields was producers. the was the mother cutter, yes. the editor, yeah, Academy Award. Yeah. <clears throat> so Shaw uh, comes in with this handful of paper and says, "I think I've licked that pesky speech." <laughs> <laughs> and then he reads us his version. Uh oh. And we are dumbstruck. Holy crap, this is, this, you know, wow. That's it. So he finishes reading, and Stephen said, <clears throat> that's it. That's going, wow. it's going in the movie. So the next day or so, whenever it was scheduled to shoot, <clears throat> we shot it with Shaw's version oh. of the script. Now, keep in mind, Shaw had already won a Pulitzer Prize for The Man in the Glass Booth. Yes. He had written five published novels in England. Wow. He was a real writer. Robert yeah. Shaw. Yeah. In addition to being a gifted actor and yes, a member indeed. of you know, the Royal Shakespeare Company and all that stuff, uh, he, you know, he Amazing really man. knew his onions when it came to writing. He did, yeah. You're listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show on KPFK, and our special guest is Carl Gottlieb, and our special fan is M.C. Ganey. Special and fan. We're, t- <laughs> we're, right. talking, uh, we're talking about the movie Jaws, which I hadn't seen since it came out. Oh, so I watched it on, you can rent it on Amazon for yep. less than $4. Yep. And it's really something to see because... First of all, it takes you back to that time in the mid-70s it, because I had spent some time on the vineyard. It yeah. was really nice to see the, the time capsule. But it was also remarkable to see this movie because it did revolutionize the film business. Before the but computer it, But it was revolution. all analog. Yeah. And, and some, the, 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 it was a real shooting. And uh, one of the fascinating things is how do you make that giant shark realistic, which was a huge job that was – Put off until the very end. Very but the frustrating thing, job, the thing that just right. blew me away was the rig in Cow Bay, yeah. off of Edgartown, where you had um, three fathoms down, twenty-four feet down. There was a rail installed where divers had to go down underwater and grease the rails, and this was the mechanism that pulled the shark because you couldn't have a boat do it because you'd right. see the wake and the rope. Yep. And this thing was being pulled mechanically Under, 24 feet underwater on the ground of the yeah. real ocean. I mean, no special effects. Dragging no, no, that, no vi- that wonderful yeah. big barrel behind right. it. Right. No, no digital effects. This was the real deal. It was long before CGI. Had there been CGI, Jaws would never have gone over budget because a lot of the, the last third of the movie is at sea. Yeah, that's right. And... Uh, you need a clear horizon. It was only, you know, 
40 feet offshore yeah. looking out across Nantucket Bay. But the, the illusion was you were way out to oh, sea, yes. far long yeah, way Yeah, but the locals help. were shaking you down. And, and oh, <laughs> locals were, were yeah. ripping us off at every opportunity. <laughs> but but uh, yeah. I would but, say I'd like to return just for a moment. Sure. To, to Thank you for disabusing the myth the, that goes around about who wrote that. And, exactly. and, uh, and I love your line that who are you going to believe, the guy who was there and know who wrote it or the guy who wasn't there and said he did. Yeah. I think we know who you're talking about. Right. I, 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 and to, just just to paraphrase what yeah. you said, what I what I actually said, who are you going to trust when you you know the guy who who was there and tells you he didn't write it, yeah. Or, or, yeah. The, or the guy who was not there and tells it's, you he, he did. did? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was wondering, if, would you be uh, would you have any interest in disabusing another myth or two that you've heard caught, tossed around of by course. people who weren't there? Of course. Please. Oh, do you, do I, you tell me what myth? What? Oh, I, I, oh, I just I thought maybe you might uh, have a thought of some. I mean, when you hear people say, oh, this happened this way and this happened that way, and you were there all the time for everything, it must make you chuckle up your sleeve. Well, the, uh, on the Internet, there's, you know, there's probably 20, 10 or 20 or 30,000 people yeah. who are members of various JAWS groups mm-hmm. that I, I'm a member of also. And the same question arises like every – maybe every year or two. Uh-huh. And they all turn to me and they say, Carl, what about that? Uh, one of the most uh, popular ones is there's a, a lovely nighttime shot of the boat at sea and there's a shooting star that comes whizzing across the street twice. And the, de- the debate, although there shouldn't be a debate, is that an optical effect or did Stephen just get lucky with that shot? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As Joe Alves is fond of pointing out, that was a day for night shot. So there was no way of putting... <laughs> A right. comment and the thing. Right. You just had to scratch the negative and put in, you know, put in. The, it was the, nice. Yeah, it, was it, was, it was a he, really he nice. He invented touch. scratching the negative for gunshots. <laughs> wow. and, the, and the whole decapitated head scene, which I, I played back a couple of times to see how the shock effect worked, and it was primarily audio. Yeah. And uh, that that was shot in uh, a swimming pool with some milk in the water. In the Verna's in Verna's yeah. Verna's feels like. Months later in post-production that we made that. Stephen, we had seen the film in previews, and Stephen said, I need one more big scream. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And that was the, the, the obvious moment, and that's where he, they went to Universal and scrounged up whatever they could from the boat. Now, I have to tell you that your book, uh, particularly the Jaws log, uh, it, it captures so many characters that just seeing the movie, you might, you might go, well, that's an interesting guy. Who is that guy? Hello, young fella, oh, yeah. and all these different things. And you go through and flesh them out and tell who they are, yep. which in, increases the enjoyment. The local of characters. Them. Oh, my God. Because yeah. you know, I've spent some time in New England, and you can scratch any <laughs> place you want. You'll find some characters now. Oh, yeah. There's a, a line that uh, Hooper has in the movie. He said, you know, they're comparing scars. Yeah. And he shows, you know, this is uh, where where Mary Ellen Moffat broke my heart. Broke yeah. <laughs> On the vineyard, that gets a laugh that stops the show because there was a real Mary Ellen Moffat who was what, uh-huh. you know, the, the, the available girl in high school with that everybody went with. Oh, wow. <laughs> Everyone knew her as Nancy. Was, <laughs> was there tension between Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfuss? Um there was a natural tension that was built into the script. There was an actor's tension because Shaw was a trained actor from London with a mm-hmm, real background. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Dreyfus was a relative newcomer. He had one film. You know, mm-hmm. Dirty Kravitz. Dirty yeah, Kravitz. Great, great film. Brilliant. Uh, American Graffiti hadn't come out yet. Yeah. He was, you know, he was a... 
you know, a good kid actor. He played. I did a I did a play reading with him at yeah. that point. He was he, just starting. And you have yeah. one line in uh, in uh, Valley of the Dolls. Oh, no. oh maybe. But I'm, I'm thinking of uh, oh. uh, the uh, oh. the Alzheimer's story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. No, he's it's a, college, a fraternity house in uh, Berkeley, and he steps in. So you want me to call the cops? I'll call the cops. It's a. Uh, oh no no that, that that was not 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 a Berkeley. That's the hotel where. Um, Anne Bancroft is having an affair with Dustin Hoffman. The graduate. Oh, it's the graduate. The graduate. So Dreyfus can be seen at the lobby of the hotel <laughs> saying that, that yeah. line. I'll be darned. But also with Norman, what is it, Norman Fell? He's, yeah. he's got the rent boarding house. Yeah. And uh, she, oh, she yes, screams. Yes. She screams and everybody comes to the door. And Dreyfus leans in and says, they're like, want me to call the cops? I'll call the cops. Oh, and I'm yes, thinking, right, thinking, oh, my right. God, that's <laughs> Dreyfus. Yeah. But so, I can't remember the name of the movie. So Jaws, <laughs> Jaws kind of broke some conventions. You, you call graduate. it a two-act structure, not a three-act that's structure. That's right. Yeah. I have arguments with screenwriting professors about that. Ah. Can you explain what the difference is to somebody? Well, you know, the standard Western dramatic structure has evolved since Moliere and Shakespeare. It started mm-hmm. out as a five – classical drama mm-hmm. has a five-act structure. Yep. And, you know, that, that suited actors and writers for a couple hundred years. <laughs> and then uh, somewhere along the line, probably in the 19th century, uh, to simplify storytelling, it uh, – Evolved into the three act structure, you know, summed up as Act One, uh, and you know, get, introduce the actor, get him up into a tree. Act Two, throw things at him, complicate <laughs> his life. Act, act Two, Act Three, get him down. Right. Yeah. Tree, right. You know? mm-hmm. Well, if you look at Jaws, Act One is everything until the time they go to sea, curtain, rise the curtain, and then you're at sea for Act Three, where they. Killed a shark eventually. I'm sorry, I'm spoiling. Yeah, <laughs> <The> spoiler alert. Spoiler <laughs> Too bad. Too bad. Too late. But it's a two-act structure. And mm-hmm. I, w- I was teaching screenwriting at Columbia in New, York, in New York, and I was having an argument with the chairman of the department and the other guys who taught film, and they said, we're teaching three-act structure. I said, well, you know, it, it's two-act structure. And the guy says, no, it's a three-act structure. I'll show you how. Don't. I said, don't bother. Don't bother. <laughs> you're, you're wrong. But, it, you know, that... that uh, so it just broke a lot of norms, and, oh, yeah. and and this was the first summer blockbuster, which that's how it did change the industry. Yeah. It went immediately out on like 500 screens, which the, that, which was unheard of at the time, right? The origin of that was after the second preview in Lakewood, California, which was picked for a similarity statistically to middle America. They did, mm. they did a lot of product testing there because mm-hmm. a real white bread Orange County community in yeah. those days. Uh uh, the you know the the head got the, the the big scream and everything after the preview where the head was in the sh- in the show and everybody screamed there was uh, you know a, just a buzz you couldn't hear yourself think and the buzz in the lobby wow. was so great so the only place you could talk was in the men's room <laughs> so in the men's room of the Lakewood Theater are Sid Scheinberg. Lou Wasserman, <laughs> the head of, of the publicity and, and marketing for Universal and one other person, standing with their expensive shoes in the water because <laughs> everybody had held it in until the final, <laughs> final credits. So there's, everybody had been flushing the toilets like crazy. You <laughs> were in this room too, clearly. Yeah, yeah there, so there's two inches of it water. It was the room where it happened. And Wasserman says, you know, the best word of mouth is a line around the block, you know, maybe where people can't yeah. get in. Yeah. And they said, well, you know, we don't want – we need to recoup a lot of money on this thing, you know, yeah. so maybe we don't wait for – so the compromise was we'll open it as wide as we can. 
Mm. In those days, it was like 480 screens when it first opened. You opened up. Jaws wide. Yes. We <laughs> Wonderful. So, uh, and and, and uh, so it came to pass. They, they, but that, what did that feel like to know that you had that great a, a success? Well, we didn't know at the time. Yeah. You know, we, they just, okay. So everybody figured it was going to be a summer blockbuster movie. We right. get everybody, you know, popcorn movie. Yep, yep. And you know, come September, everybody go home. And Still then, rolling. Uh, and the reason it opened on 400 screen, we get our money back no matter what happens. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Well, it opened on 400 something screens, and then you know, the word of mouth and, and the reviews, every everything conspired that the movie started to gross and gross mm-hmm. and gross. Well, and, what did it finally gross approximately? Um, I don't know, a couple of th- enough to qualify it. On an inflation-adjusted average, for one of the top ten grossing films of all time, with a budget wow. of originally three point five million, 3. but 5 went up million. to five. Went or up to about seven million or eight million. million. But uh, by opening, that was just your salary. Though. Yeah, it's just, it's just the writer. So, <laughs> so they they made all all this tremendous amount of money, and then they j- it just kept grossing. You know, July. Yeah. August, September, and just how exciting! You know, every week we were the top-grossing film, and then they they started taking ads in the trades showing the shark devouring, uh, Sound of Music, <laughs> Godfather, you know, all all the priests, and until the release of Godfather Two, uh, Jaws Two was the most successful sequel of all time. Wow! And Jaws. Three uh, D. <laughs> yeah, you did. Now, your credits include the Jerk. Yes. Jaws Two. Dr. Detroit, Jaws 3D, yep. Which Way is Up, and Caveman, which you directed. Yep. Wow. So you I went think, on I to think a, the, the Jaws 3D was subtitled Which Way is Up. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That, that's um, uh, remarkable. I'd like to ask you another question, if I may. Sure. A few years ago on NPR, you were having a conversation about, uh, I believe about Spielberg was, was your, what was in your mind, if I may. But you said that there were two or three things that abilities that if you were going to be successful as a film director, you should have these abilities. Right. And I remember that one of them was you would be really handy if you had great talent. Mm. <laughs> and uh, I wonder, do you remember that, that discussion? Well, yes. Yeah, so the, the three things, you know, the three tentpole legs of the tripod of success yes. uh, is a s- speed, um, accuracy, and involvement. Mm. Wow. And almost everything devolves to two. You can usually, and the, and, the, and the problem to most people is you can have two out of three. You can have it cheap and fast, but it won't be good. Wow. You can have it good and cheap, but it won't be fast. Yeah. You can have it fast and cheap, but it won't be good. You know? So, uh, Jaws, you know, Stephen did all things. He could do it fast, he could do it cheap, and he could do it good, mm-hmm. which is very unusual. That's are you, are you and, still and, in, uh, connected to Steve? You, no. I, 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 we're cordial to each other. Cordial. But nowadays, as I say in the book, Stephen is like a volcano. He's best descri- best observed from a distance. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I remember you also saying that uh, at some point that the ability to ne- negotiate the politics is a big advantage, yes. too. And that comes through in your book. The politics shouts at you from many pages. Stephen was a superb politician. politician. Most most directors ignore the politics and concentrate on the art. Yeah. A lot of people do, will do the art and the politics and not pay attention to the quality. Yeah. Uh, Stephen was 
mastered everything politics mm. quality and you know can i ask speed. what you thought uh, you, briefly about david brown and mr zanuck i mean as the, the two as men the, the two producers, producers. Yeah. yeah you were uh number one is they were stingy bastards uh uh william gilmore who was executive producer and saved the production literally i mean mm. he bent all his skills of 20 years as production manager to you know making sure that we got the movie finished no matter what wow and as a reward Zanuck and brown bought him a big screen tv Wow. <laughs> at, at which point he quit and went out on his own. I oh, bet he did. <laughs> Meanwhile, across the hill, where Five Easy Pieces was a hit, mm. everybody involved in that picture, including my friend who paid the sound engineer, got a check for $20,000 or a Miata. Wow. Wow. Uh, wow. With a note from the producer saying, we want to share our success with you. Ah, now wow. speaking of that, yes. let's talk about the writer's strike. You are very involved, or were very, involved, very involved, in, in the union, the Writers Guild. You were vice president here on the West Coast. Um, and long history it's, it's interesting, in, in your book, 30-year anniversary edition of The Jaws Log, which I highly recommend to anyone curious about the business Second and that. particularly Jaws, yep. Um, you you kind of were pressing it because you were talking about now it's 2001 and the commercial actors are on strike. I remember that strike. And, oh you know, boy, who's the, who knows what's going to happen in 2025, which was a quarter mm. century into the future. And now here we are almost. And we're now at the crossroads of a strike. And one of the things to set up is is that, you know, the LA Times today had an interesting article about the pay compensation for the CEOs of these companies that are yeah. being struck. And uh, David Zasloff, I I guess you pronounce his name, Warner Brothers yeah. Discovery. Uh, you know, we're talking about a total compensation of a half a billion. And, uh, you know, Ted Sarandos, because this is really kind of euphemistically called the Netflix strike. You know, these people are making hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Now, some of it, a lot of it is equity, and they may not see it because of the stock price. But even so. Karl Marx had the answer from each according to his ability to, to each, each according, according to, to his need. need. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sort of like uh, the Native American philosophy of wealth. Yeah. You just take what you need. Yeah. So what's what what is your take on it? I mean the uh, the simple encapsulated question you may not have the answer to this but in in strike busting in the, in the grocery strike for example years ago uh, Burkle told the union heads because my landlord was one said you know I'll spend more money than I you want to break the strike because I don't want California to set the tone for the rest of the supermarkets across the country. So these billionaires have bottomless pockets. Right. And, and, and so it's, it's really almost cruelty. It's not inability. Uh, how much would you think that the WGA is asking for in dollar amount if they got what they asked for? And how does that compare to one of these people's annual salary? You'd have to go on the internet and look at the... Uh, what what the unions are saying because they've done those calculations. Mm -hmm. I haven't. Okay. I, I, didn't, yeah. I didn't. But tell us about what what is your take on what's going on? Same old, same old. Uh, pretty much so. The greed heads want to keep it all, and the workers, in this case, the writers, mm -hmm. but also the directors and the actors, yeah. only want what is a fair share of the pie. Yeah. Right. That's right. You know, just you know, share the wealth. There's plenty to go around. You guys can still have. You know, seven, almost eight-figure salaries. Yeah. Yep. But, you know, what we're asking for adds up to a total over the three years of the contract, 
I mean, I, I, I'm just giving you hypotheticals. Over the three years of the contract, you give us everything we're asking for. It's still, you know, a fragment of, of what what's available, making, what the pool right. is. Yeah. I mean, Netflix has what 230 subscribers 230 worldwide. Million. 230 million subscribers. Multiply that by $40 a month, which is what mm -hmm. most of them are paying. Mm -hmm. That's a hell of a piece of change. And you can make a show like Game of Thrones with, you know, horses mm -hmm. and period and all that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, per episode cost of a million eight or three yeah, million. That's right. Uh, and, you know, just, you know, yeah, not even affect your bottom line. Netflix is a little tone deaf, too, because they've chosen this week to clamp down on subscription uh, usage uh, yeah, for that's true, isn't it? parents that have kids at college or people who are in a separate location for more than a month yep. have to get a second account. Yep. It's uh, <clears throat> The greed heads never stop being greed heads. Yeah, and the and studio heads never stop. I used to romanticize them 50 years ago when I came into this business. I heard the other day that in 1942, uh, the head of Warner Brothers uh, had uh, heard that the uh, he'd seen what the Japanese did and had heard they were going to bomb Warner Brothers because it was right next to Lockheed. It looked a lot like it from the air. So he sent a team up to paint a big arrow on the roof of the <laughs> stage one, with saying, literally saying Lockheed with that oh, arrow. No, no, no. I mean, that's the kind of Americans that, oh, that, boy. that, that uh, Jack Warner was. And because the, the Defense Department made him take it off. But hey, that's I appreciate funny. the gesture, Jack. So they're sort of saying the same thing now. You know, you know the, 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 in the voiceover industry, we have been fighting for years to try to get a piece, a residual piece of the games, the, the profit that the, the video games are making. Which is the billions and billions of dollars. Of course. There's, have, no, piece have of, there's no, no piece in that. Oh, no, oh, oh I have no, no idea. That's you get, terrible. We, they, they raise the salary for you know screaming for three hours. Yeah. To, a little yeah. bit. And to, and to make up for it, they abruptly cut the health benefits of the senior performers like Phil and myself yep. who accumulated our pension credits you know, during better times. That's right. And they just arbitrarily said, no, fuck you. You don't have any health coverage anymore. Yeah, that's yeah, no, right. Uh, the three of us, we're, we're all out. Yeah. yeah. It's a very, it's a very disturbing we're out. We're, You know, we're still licensed by the FCC. Just so oh, I'm, oh, the F-CC. That, that's that's that'll be a $10 fine. Well, send me a bill. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pay it now. Cash, okay? Um, I'll give you 50 right now if I can say up some more. <laughs> <laughs> I so, got a hundred. Tell them everything. So are they, you know, it's it, it's almost seeming like with the residual system being um, uh, torn up because of the new the new distribution methodology, writers are losing ground. It's not even a matter of staying abreast of cost of living. Well, everybody and, is. And, the and, actors and, are too. No, that's what I'm saying. It's like I wonder with with SAG after coming up and the directors coming up. If the if there's a teeth out attitude by the studios now to just say, you know, we have there, you know, there are eight major owners of ninety percent of the media in America, and that includes all the TV studios, Comcast, scary, for example. So. so you really have this small cabal of power brokers, a uh, cabal of cannibals. <laughs> it is right. You know, I mean, so they, I mean, it's it's a new world. It's it's different from the strike twenty years ago because of this. I mean, it seems more bleak for the worker. Well, for the, all those all the wage scales and everything were developed based on. 26, 26 episode seasons. Yes, that's right. right. Nowadays, a season is eight episodes, yeah, nine maybe episodes, and they want to keep you off the market as a writer for those eight episodes and another twenty weeks while you prepare. You know, 
your your work. So it, it's uh, it's a complete dilution of everything we've ever won in the past. So can, can I wait, uh, wait in? I'm I'm going to sure. die if I don't ask you this question. Yes. So what are you doing now? What's going on next week? What are you are you writing anything now? What's, me, what's me personally, next? Carl Gottlieb himself. You personally, sir. I'm just staying under the radar. I mean, I I, I uh, I'm frailer than I've ever been. I kind of enjoy staying home. Yes. I went out this past weekend and did an autograph show in uh, Baltimore, Maryland. Oh, oh somewhere. wow. <laughs> and, you know, I signed a lot of autographs. I made a couple thousand dollars in, uh-huh. in uh, fees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and met a lot of fans. Met, well, all fans. That yeah. must have been fun. And, and, uh, but I'm, I got home. I was exhausted. I'm, I'm here having slept for 14 hours. Oh, oh was wow. that right? It was yeah, that, I, that I, came, I came back. I had an 8 a.m. flight from Baltimore, which is like 5 a.m. here. Yeah. So by the time we got to L.A., and I got, by the time I got to my bed, I had been awake for six hours, and it was only 10 a.m. Whoa. And I was, I was, you know. So you just came yeah, back? That's right. began, yeah, I came back yesterday. Do oh, you, my. Are you still writing? Um, only if somebody asks and pays me. I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't seek out writing work. I'm not, I haven't started, I did come up with the title or at least a, a concept for my own autobiographical book, which everybody yeah. has been saying you ought to write a book. Yes, sure. The title is An Imperfect Journal, and it's based on something I said years ago, which is, here's the whole quote, memory is an imperfect journal of experience. Oh, that's lovely. It's so true. It's Very so, true for mine. I yeah. think yeah. I heard that once before. Your memory no, is no. amazing. No, no. It may be imperfect, but it is amazing. Hey, Carl. Yeah. Does this, does this ring a bell with you? I'm, I'm giving him a piece of I'm paper. I'm handing a piece of paper that says Carl. greetings of the season. Fourth annual Carl Gottlieb belated greetings in chain letter in which I attempt to serve both social and postal obligations. <laughs> I found that when I was going through <laughs> some of my stuff. <laughs> it just blew my mind that I, I've saved this. That's very and, and what it is, Carl, you wrote this really, really funny piece about don't resend this chain letter yes. or you will die. You know, the, the first, I'll, I'll read the first paragraph. Please. Of the letter. It says, Dear friend, this letter has never been around the world, not once. Nobody has ever sent a copy to anyone else. Bring luck and good fortune to yourself by neither duplicating it nor forwarding it to anyone. <laughs> That's the message of the letter. <laughs> uh, I suppose in the moment we have left, what would you tell somebody young, getting started, looking at the the landscape? What would what would their what's what's the best in as the a same, writer? The same uh, advice I give to myself and everybody else: keep writing. Yes. Write, write, write. Right, Get right. up in the morning and write. Stephen King gets up, doesn't go to lunch until he's written five hundred words. You know, yeah. it's, mm-hmm. if you write every day. Uh, you wind up with a body of work, you know, for better or worse. But you have to write every day. And if, you, if you're blocked, if there's nothing to write, yeah. if you're sitting there staring at a blank screen or a blank piece of paper yeah. back in the day, write anything. Write a letter to a friend. Write a laundry list. Write a, a memo to yourself about how you've got a, a plunge in the toilet tomorrow. But but just keep Good writing. Advice. Write, mm-hmm. write, write. Keep putting words on paper any way you can, and then eventually the block will go away, and then you'll proceed with whatever it is you really want to write, which is your story or screenplay or like that. And and before we wrap up, I do want to also mention uh, that your cousin Paul Gottlieb was a friend of 
our family, the Proctor family, because my mom was his secretary. And Paul was a very well-known editor in New York and created the Horizon magazine, which is still a wonderfully unique piece of art. My cousin Paul is the guy who convinced me to recapture the copyright for the Jaws log and reissue it. There you go. And he hooked Mm. me up with Esther (laughs) uh, Margolis from New Market Press. And I remember Paul calling me from a theater lobby in New York saying, I just talked to Esther Margolis. Call her. She's going to print your book. Hot oh, job. Oh, <laughs> wow. Isn't that great? And Thanks, I also, cousin. And I so also it came, wanna, to, so I wanna, it came p- to pass. I want to pay a tribute to Milt Larson. Oh, the, yes. You know, the, the co-founder uh, yeah. of the Magic Castle yeah. uh-huh. and a, a remarkable man of many, many talents uh, who was as kind as he was prolific. And so God bless you. That's Our guest right. next week is Phoebe. Phoebe Doran. Yeah. That's right. And uh, and uh, maybe a mystery guest uh, will be showing up, well, too. I can't thank yeah. you guys enough for letting me oh, be here. Oh, just you're a great fan. Carl Gottlieb, thank you so much. What a what a wonderfully interesting hour this has been. Thank you. And, uh, here. and thank you regards, for Jaws. Regards from Marianne, by the way. <laughs> really? If, if you're listening, Marianne, and we, we send our regards back to you. This is Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. I'm Ted Bonnet. I'm Phil Proctor, and we'll be hearing you again Next soon, week. won't I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> bye bye.